1984, Austin Life Care opened its doors to women in need. Over the past 35 years, tens of thousands of women have walked through those doors and thousands of babies who are in danger of being aborted are alive today. And not only that, but tens of thousands of families have heard the gospel as a result of this ministry's work. Two years ago, the Spirit led us to explore additional services to better care for women in our community. We were compelled to take three additional steps to better love the women in our city. First, earlier this year, we relocated to a former abortion clinic. Over 20,000 babies lost their lives in this clinic, and thousands of women were impacted by the trauma of abortion. Now, through the power of your generosity, God is shining a light in that dark place. This building allowed us to embark upon initiative number two. We've hired medical professionals to expand our services to include substantially all the services that Planned Parenthood offers, with the exception of abortion. Prenatal care, STI, STD testing and treatment, annual women's exams, cancer screenings. We're serving everyone in our community. And lastly, we believe God is planting a seed right here in Austin for a movement to combat this culture of death in our country. I'm excited to announce that eight faith-based, life-affirming women's health clinics throughout the state have unified together under one brand to create a new alternative to abortion providers. Austin Life Care is now the source. We thank you for your love, your support, your prayer, and your generosity over the last 35 years. Together, we can partner to change women's health care in Texas forever. God bless. Hey. Well, let me introduce you, Mary Whitehurst. Uh, there's a picture of her family, her husband and her son. She's the chief executive officer here at uh, formerly Austin Life Care. Now it is the source, Austin. Some, a lot has happened. It's an amazing video. That was pretty dense. It is, personally, it's fun to be on the offense <laughs> instead of defense all these 50 years now. Um, Mary, tell me, tell us, you know, uh, what, what's, what's happening at the source now in Austin. Yeah, so it's been a really exciting year of growth for us, and God has really done some amazing things. Um, one of the first things that's happened is that our lifeguard program, which right now offers um, it's sexual risk avoidance education to teenagers who are in schools in and around Austin. And this is to try to help them be empowered to make good choices around their sexual health and hopefully encourage them to delay sex until marriage. Um, last year, we were able to reach close to 16,000 students with that program, that which is awesome. amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, and also very then, exciting, yeah, is then in October, we got awarded a $250,000 grant to expand this program. Um, so we have big dreams and big hopes for what's going to happen with that. Awesome. And then uh, you changed locations and, and changed kind of the direction of, of advertising. How mm -hmm. has that changed uh, the center? Yes, so we have always helped women in the community who were needing a support and assistance with their pregnancies, but a couple of years ago, we were intentional about targeting women who were seeking abortion services. Mm -hmm. And so in 2019, we were able to serve over 1,300 women, and over 300 of those women were specifically coming to us because they were looking to abort their pregnancies. Uh, it's a hard situation to be in, and when those women get to our center, we're able to sit down with them, have a, converse a conversation in a confidential space, 
really be able to talk through with them, like, what are they facing? What are their challenges? What are their barriers? Because most women don't really want to have an abortion. They just feel like that's their only option. So if we're able to help them combat some of the barriers they're facing, they're much more likely to choose to parent our place for adoption. Right, and look at all the resources you do offer. Yes. Uh, someone comes tell us about all those resources. Yes, and so if a mother does choose life, which we had 94 life decisions in 2019. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, when they make that decision for life, though, we want to support them. We want to come around them and make sure they're prepared to parent. So we have parenting classes they can take. We offer free professional counseling. We have mentors that they can be matched with. And we also want to make sure they have the supplies because babies are expensive. So we make sure they have a baby clothes, diapers, wipes. We give away cribs, pack and place, car seats, all of those things that they would need to just prepare themselves for the baby. Right, all the way to the, like the child's fourth birthday, mm-hmm. right? Yes, exactly. We can make a commitment for four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and some of the ladies, they have abortion in their background or they choose to end the life. What, mm-hmm. what, what resources do you have for them? So we have a program called Life Change um, that is put in place specifically to help women walk through that journey of healing. A lot of women um, have been wounded by abortion, um, and we're able to help them just kind of find healing in the Lord through that. I love how complete and holistic uh, the ministry of the source has been for all these years. What does is, what is 2020 look like? Yeah, so for 2020, we are really excited with our expansion of services. We are projecting to at least double the women that we've been able to serve the previous year. So we're hoping to serve at least 2,500 women um, in 2020. Um, And God has just really been moving our staff into a place of centering around the ministry that we're trying to do. We know we can provide resources and support, but we really want to have more of an impact on their eternity. Um, And so this year, we were able to have more conversations to give out more resources, and we reached over 500 women um, to kind of lead them and direct them in the direction of Christ, and 50 of them actually gave their lives to Christ. Wow, that's a great story. I wanted, uh, sometimes, you know, when you're in the, when you're in the the business and and just doing work uh, like they do, sometimes you get touched by a real story with real impact, and, and Mary sent me one of those stories I wanted you to tell the rest of us about it. Yes, for sure. So we had a client recently that was in our class, our education program. She came up to the instructor after class um, just to talk with her briefly. This client is one who actually had quite an impact on our team. She was very, very determined when she came in and saw us the first time in, in July. She just was in a really tough situation. She was living paycheck to paycheck. She and her husband didn't have stability in their housing. They already had a three-year-old, and they just couldn't see a way for this to work. Thankfully, by God's grace, she was able to make a better choice. And when she walked up to Carol, who leads all of our classes, she was teary-eyed. And I want to read to you all what she actually told Carol because it was so beautiful. She said, you all have helped me so much. Maybe you don't realize it, but you have. You all saved my baby's life. My husband and I came here with the intention of aborting our baby because we just could not see how we could manage financially. After they embraced, and at this point we're both in tears, that client said to Carol, thank you for saving our baby. And that's why we do what we do, right? That baby, that mother, that father, their souls. Um, So we're grateful to be part of Austin Life Care now, the source Austin. What we can do, we can help and, and learn more about it as a church. Uh, there's a table in the lobby. Mary's going to be here after church. I'd love for you to come up and meet her and say hi. And then, and then we've been waiting two, two weeks, maybe three weeks now, to have the privilege of, of giving generously towards uh, Austin Source. So I think this year, I'll, I think we could 
we could raise like $70,000 from our congregation towards this ministry in, in ways. And I want to pray towards that end. And we'll, we'll pray for that today, okay? It, there's four ways you can give. We kind of got all technical now. We're like join the 21st century. Uh, f- uh, there's an envelope in your bulletin. Hopefully you can give, you can put cash in there or make a check out to the source and put it in there. But also you can give now via text by doing what it says up there, Grace 360 is a source with that number and whatever. You know, give your phone to your teenager, they'll take it from there. Uh, or go through our realm site. Now you can give through, you know, the church's website. That's a very efficient way of doing it as well. Okay, so let's, let's do something we haven't done, like hit a number as large as that. Okay, it'd be fun. It's a great, it's a great time to be involved in, in this cause yeah. of, of life, of life, saving life. So let, let's pray with that in, in, in mind. Lord, we, uh, we do lift up the privilege that we've had for these 30 plus years to be involved in, in this ministry of, of caring and serving. And every life is valuable to you and we know that every soul you grieve for and so we wanna play our part in that. We lift up Mary to you as the director and the CEO of this local expression. We ask that you'd give her courage and insight and understanding that she would not grow weary in doing these great things. Lord, I'd ask that you, your spirit would speak to ours so that we might know how we can respond, how we can play a part in, in our, our, our country's history and kind of invade the darkness, whether with our lives or with our resources, and that we would give generously in that context so that we might, we might live eternally without temporal regrets. Let us live boldly and courageously in the context of of these values. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mary. Thank Thank you you. so much. So we're looking uh, at a survey of the Bible, and today we're going to look at the human condition, and it is summarized in a single Hebrew word, timshel, timshel. It's found in Genesis chapter 4. We're, stu- we're going to study part of our study is the study of the flood. It starts in chapter 4, verse 6, and it says, So the Lord Yahweh says to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you may rule over it. Tim Shell. You may. You should rule over it. You can rule over it. Sin is at your door. It is crouching to rule you, but you may rule it. John Steinbeck's book, East of Eden, is written entirely around this Hebrew word, Timshel. Sin lies at the door. Its desire is for you, but you may. In Genesis chapters 4 through 11, we'll survey that today. We're talking about the the condition of the human soul. Yes, humanity, but our soul, my soul. It is fallen, living east of Eden. We We are bent. We are twisted deeply. Every single one of us. And we can't fix this. It started with the temptation at Satan said, you surely will not die. 
you surely will not die. And the story is death. The history of man is the history of death. When we look at the big picture, we've studied so far paradise found, given, and then paradise lost. And now we look at the cost of that. Paradise found, we see in the first two chapters of Genesis, where we are meant to and designed to know God and to love God. We, are, we were made to love each other recklessly, right, without boundaries and never fearing any kind of injury. We were given meaning and purpose. Take these beautiful things and turn it into something extravagant and do that for, the, for other people and for God himself. That's paradise. And then paradise was lost. Adam and Eve, the first family, the two humans that have had an unusual sense of freedom that has never been seen since then, they violated the only prohibition, do not take from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because Satan said, surely you will not die. A king and a queen, but it was not enough. They thought God had something that was, he was withholding. And so all is lost. All that was meant to live is now death. And now we serve an unholy trinity. This is our bent and this is our twist. Me, myself, and I. That's who we serve. Our souls are turned in. There's always something for me in this. And we did this and we cannot fix it. And so the story of the fall ends with God saying, I'll fix this. I'll intervene. And he makes a promise to Adam and to Eve. And he says, a son of Eve will someday come and crush the head of Satan and all of evil. And Eve is so committed to that promise, she probably believes that her firstborn, her son, is that fulfillment. Cain, he's the one, my first child. And the message of chapters 4 through 11, to, for you to understand the power and the passion of 4 through 11, not just what it says, but what it means, it's this. That this new world living east of Eden, entropy, entropy rules all created things. Everything is now approaching and careening towards chaos. Every single atom every thought, every intention, chaos. You will die. You will die. It's a descent into hell, and we can't stop it from happening. We don't have the power to do that. In Genesis 4 through 11, the outline goes like this. It is a story of, the, of a world of death. It is a story of God's grief, a story of God's judgment, a story of God's help. It's a mood, it's a theme, it's a message, a story of death. Cain's first words, this is the hope of Adam and Eve, Cain's first words, because this is who he is. He says to his younger brother, Abel, let us go out into the field. And Abel never returns. Cain kills Abel. And in the confrontation between Cain and God, there are two questions and two answers. God, hoping for some kind of confession, says, where is your brother Abel? Where is your brother? Where is Abel? And Cain says to God Almighty, 
in his holiness and his authority, he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? (laughs) The gall. He did know. And as a matter of fact, he is his brother's keeper. We are all to be keeping after each other. And so this is the curse of Cain. This is what he hears from God. And said, Yahweh said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out from the ground, and now you're cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed up your brother's blood. And no longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work it. For now you will be a homeless wanderer all over the earth. And Cain hears this. And weeps bitterly, he says, and Cain replies to Yahweh, he says, oh, the punishment for me is too great to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. And now anyone who finds me will kill me. And when you read that in Genesis chapter 4, you need to listen that this is not repentance. This is not someone saying, oh, sin was crouching at the door and desired to rule me, and I couldn't, and so can you help me? I need you to help me rule this sin. No, that's not what he's saying. This is not repentance. This is regret. His weeping is, I can't believe I got caught, and I don't want these consequences. Listen to what he's afraid of, because I don't want someone else to do to me what I did to my brother Abel. I can't live with that. And so it says that he leaves the presence of the Lord, verse 16, and he goes farther east of Eden and forms a city there. And eventually, as the story goes, one of his his first descendants that's noteworthy, that's brought to our attention, is Lamech. And Lamech's first words of description are this. And Lamech had two wives. He's the first in a series of polygamous relationships. He's the first to set a standard of an abuse of power and the purpose of marriage, a violation of intimacy and trust. From now on, we'll see polygamy, and there's not one story that is successful. And Lamech starts it. And why does he have two wives? Because he can. Because he can. Who's going to stop him? The first words of Lamech, and this is who he is, is this. One day Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zella, hear my voice. You listen to me, you wives of Lamech. I have killed a man who attacked me, a teenager who bruised me. If someone kills Cain, is, is punished seven times, then the one who kills me will be punished 77 times. Oh, Lamech, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to rule you. And he says, rule me? I yield to it. I bathe myself in that sin. I will never release this anger within me. I will feed it instead. We live in a world where might makes right, and I'm the mightiest, and so I make the rules. You listen to me, wives. Tell your friends this. If some teenage kid bruises my foot, I'll kill him. (laughs) Sin is crouching at my door. It wants to rule me. Bring it. That's the story of Lamech. And this is the beginning of the history of man. And the history of man is the history of death. Brother killing brother. Tribe killing tribe. Nation killing nation. And we did this. 
and we can't stop doing it. Sin's desire is hatred and violence, and we continue and perpetuate this in our souls, sometimes with cleverness, but always serving that unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. The genealogies are written in Genesis chapter 4 and part of chapter 5, and they're not genealogies of life where people are giving birth. They're genealogies of death because the history of man is the history of death. Sin is crouching at the door and wants to rule over you. Its desire is for that. You may, you may rule it to mesh. Tim Shell, if you do. Oscar Wilde knew this. Oscar Wilde, a famous atheistic right, uh, nihilist, said this. He says, when the gods want to punish us, they answer our prayers. He knew that the nature of the human soul was so dark that if we get whatever we want, we get what we deserve. And it destroys us. Natalie Merchant, remember her and the 10,000 Maniacs in the 90s? Remember that song? Hey, if lust and hate is their candy, then give them what they want. Just give them what they want. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 1. He said, and then God gave them over. God gave them over to their passions. And they just continue this descent into darkness, into hell, doing what their sin has desiring for them to be. And this is bottom. This is bottom. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. And Yahweh observed the extent of human wickedness on earth. And he saw that everything they thought or even imagined was consistently and totally evil. Look, look, let me just repeat it. Look how it's all pervasive. And the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. It is hard to imagine what that is like. And only if only because we are here now, okay, in the history of human experience, honestly, we are in this bubble, a very unique bubble. This is, at least if you're American and in the suburbs, you you have a difficult time understanding or imagining that this is true or what it looks like. Because in the history of mankind, there has never been this prolonged experience of safety and security. You, you have to interview maybe a, a veteran or maybe a first responder to see this darkness that's always been there and is still here now. If you look at just a passing glance of history, it is all written in blood because the history of man is the history of death. Every once in a while, I mean, I've been studying this for years, and I, when there, there's a book that grasps what this is like, it was, it was a best-selling book a number of years ago. It's called The Road. Some of you may have read it. If you want to know what Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 looks like, it was turned into a movie. Put your kids to bed. Turn out the lights. Watch this movie. Oh, it's a horror movie. It is so scary. It's threateningly scary. And here's why. Because there's no boogeyman. There's just man. And sin is crouching at the door and his desire for man. Might makes right. And man says, Jim shall. I won't. I won't rule over it. This is our condition. Every thought Every imagination that we have is constantly and totally on evil. And the, you, 
you know you've grasped the, the mood and the meaning of, of Moses' writings in these chapters of 4 and 5 and 6. If you find yourself yelling at the Bible and screaming to God for the love of God and all things holy, will someone just end all of this? Will someone just start this whole thing over? And that's how you get to the story of the flood, is, is yelling. Somebody stop this. Now, what's surprising in the story of the flood is not the thoroughness of the judgment, right? And it's not about the wrath of God. That's not what will surprise you. It's, it's actually just a, a phrase that's often overlooked. And, and, it, and it's this, it's the distress of God. That's what the story's about. It's the anguish that God is experiencing. The word that will be used is grief, and that means unfulfilled longing for something more. And that's why the second part of the story is the story of God's grief. Look, in Genesis chapter 5, we just 6-5, it says, and, the, and Yahweh observed the extent of the human wickedness of the earth, and he saw everything that he thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. And then look how God responds. And Yahweh regretted that he had made them and put them on earth, and it grieved God to his heart. It grieved God to his heart. Some translations. Here's others. It, it brought God bitter anguish. He was deeply troubled in his soul. And what does that even mean? It's hard to right, even conceive of, of God having that depth of anguish. What it means fundamentally, one, is that God volitionally chose to attach his soul's delight or sorrow to us. He has chosen to, he doesn't need us, he doesn't have to do this, he created us, but he involves himself deeply in our well-being. And so again, he could, he could, he could look at us, this little blue marble in, the, in space, he could look at us like some little kid with an ant farm, and he sees what's happening and just I don't, throws it into fire, what does he care? But that's not what this verse says. It says his soul is anguished. It also, it also means this, that when God grieves in this story, he's grieving the entirety of the damage of death. Surely you will not die. And God was like, no, you will die. And you don't even com comprehend the fullness of what this death means. It's death, body, soul, and spirit. It's a holistic full expression of what is not what was meant to be. And so everything is damaged in this sin, crouching at the door and not ruling over it. The, the axe head that fell the tree is pitted by the tree's sap. He, he, he feels the suffering of the victim and the perpetrator. He, uh, C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, he said, the, the Nazis hated the Jews, so they killed them. And then the Nazis hated the Jews because they killed them. The Nazis hated the Jews, so they killed them. The Nazis hated the Jews because they killed them. They thought they could do things, and their souls weren't, wouldn't be altered. And when they realized it was, they hated them still more because they're bent and they're twisted and they're Deeply so. Socrates said, it's better to be robbed than a robber. If you're robbed, you lose 
stuff. If you're a robber, you've lost some image of God. And so God sees this, and he decides and chooses to feel this. You shall surely die. And so the history of man is the history of death. That's our point of view. According to this verse, Yale professor of philosophy, is, uh, Nicholas Walter Stroff, says the history of man is the tears of God. While the history of man is the history of death, the history of man is the tears of God. And now all of creation longs with death pangs for someone to do something to stop this. And so that moves us to the third section of the story, the third movement, and it's the story of God's judgment. And you probably know that story. But I, I want you to see that there's poetry in the justice, that God is making sure that we all understand that what he's giving is what they were dealing. The Hebrew word for corrupt is the word destroy. And so I'm just going to insert the word destroy so that you see the poetic justice that God is distributing in the context of his judgment. Verse uh, 6, 11 through 13 says, now, now God saw that the earth had become destroyed and they were filled with violence. And so God observed that the destruction in the world, that everyone on earth was destructive. And so God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures. And they have filled the earth with violence. God, see what he's saying, I'm 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 destroying all the self-destruction. I'm going to destroy those who are destroying. I'm going to kill death. They dealt this. They're going to have to live with this, die with this. And so the story of this judgment is just speeding up what was going to happen anyway, all of the destruction. So the story of the flood, as you may know, is Noah, this one holy family is preserved. They build an ark, and they're in the ark. They wait for God's uh, timing, and then there's a a flood for 40 days. It rains from the sky and from the land beneath, and for 40 days this takes place. The flood story is a decreation story. It is a recreation story. So after the 40 days of flooding, they spend 150 days where it says the waters cover the earth. And in that, it's supposed to remind us of the early part of the creation story where the, there was nothing but water and chaos was the description of this planet. Then the next 190 days, the water abates. And that story sounds very similar to the creation story where now land comes along and there's foliage and there's a recreation. And the high point of the recreation story is after this almost a year on the ark, Abraham sets foot on land and the first thing he does is he builds an altar and he gives a sacrifice of thanksgiving it says, and Noah built an altar to Yahweh, and he had a sacrifice of burnt offerings from animals and birds that had been approved for that very purpose. And in this recreation, it's a story of God and how he helps us, a story of God's help. Now the story tells us three things God gives us to continue our lives together. The first is a promise. 
God gives a promise. And Yahweh was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice. And he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race. Even though everything they think or imagine is bent towards evil from childhood. Still, everything they think or imagine is bent towards evil from childhood. I will never again destroy living things. And so we have that promise. The covenant sign is the rainbow so that we can all be assured that God will not judge humans, actually all living things in that way again. The second thing he gives us in this new creation is the gift of government. He gives us in verse nine, chapter 9, verse 5, he says, And I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. If anyone, anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life must be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his own image. And this section right here, it is called, you know, the, the, the gift of government. Or it's the, for the purpose of civilizing man. Since man can't govern himself, God gives government, right? And what it means is it, it is a delegate authority from God to have rights that individuals don't have. In that delegation of authority, you are also accountable directly to God for that increased authority. So God gives government so that we will hold ourselves from maybe that will help from destroying each other. The government has things. Every government is delegated by God. Every government is accountable to God. Uh, if, if you hurt my family or maybe kill one of my family members and I come and chase you down and kill you, that's not justice. That's revenge or vigilantism, right? The government can do that because that, they have the authority. If I grab you and put you in a cage for some period of time because you did something wrong, that's wrong. It's evil. I don't have a right for that. If the government does that righteously, they can because they're given that authority. Now, here's what I, there's an application that's kind of over here, but listen, what that means is, is that every person playing a part in government from, from the meter made to the Oval Office in every context is given that authority by God in this, in this covenant, in this gift of government. And everyone from meter made to the Oval Office is directly accountable for that different kind of authority they've been granted by, by God. We're given a promise and... We're given government maybe to hold back, to an attempt to hold back this sin. And then God gives us a, a command, a recreation command. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's repeated again later. And I'm sure when you read that, you're thinking, if you, you know the story of the first creation, he goes, oh, right, it's a recreation story. It has this new promise that we have a new Adam with a new mandate. And here we go. Maybe we'll get it right this time. That's our motions. That's where we're going. And this story has an ominous end to it. Because with this new Adam and this new hope, we find he's in a new garden and Noah plants a vineyard and drinks the wine and gets stupid drunk and lays naked before his children. And now nakedness reenters the story again. And it's not about being unashamed, but rather shame. And it's somehow about indecency. And so the story ends with hope and then our hope is crashed. And the reason is, is because 
the soul, the human heart, it is bent and it is twisted deeply and we cannot fix it. We broke this, we did this, but we can't make it better and rainbows and government will not make it well. That's the point of Genesis 4 through 11. That's the storyline. We're supposed to see two things, something about God and something about us. When we look at God in this story, we see a creator that is weeping and suffering with us, even more so than us. The history of man is the history of death, but the history of man is the tears of God. When we see this, we see God in the fullness of his anguish when he sees what we do. Tim Shell, if you choose, but we don't. The second thing we're to learn from this is, is about the nature of the human soul. And by that, I, I want to be very clear here. I don't mean like mankind, and I don't even mean us. I mean me. I mean you, you. This passage of Scripture is to teach us that we were meant for so much more, but we are bent. We are twisted. Today we would say this. This might help. We are addicted. We are all addicted to sin. And it is crouching at our door and it's desire for us. We're addicted to that. And if you're thinking chemical, you are missing the point of the story. You're missing the point of self-revelation. We're addicted to pride. We are bent. We're, you're made. You're, some of you might know yourself well enough to know you were born lazy. You're addicted to lazy or pride or vanity or conceit or lust or insecurity or fear. And every day you feel it happening to you. So what... what, what Here's the thing, it, it is crouching at your door, it is desire for you. The problem with addiction is sometimes early on we learn how that can serve us. And the nature of addiction is it won't stay there. Then you serve it. It rules you. How do you, how do you rule an addiction? If, if, this, if this bent and this twist is, is defined as an addiction, how do you rule that? Like it says... How does Tim Shell apply? How do you? I have a friend, uh, one of my workout buddies, and he, he was twenty something years sober. He, he's kind of a he actually he is an authority on addiction. He has a, a, a center here in Central Texas. His wife, he and his wife both speak internationally on the subject. His wife's been interviewed on several national television shows. And so one time after our workout, I said, I, "Like what? How does?" How, do this, how, does, how does addiction work? How, how do people overcome that? He goes, well, the, well, you probably heard. The first step is the hardest step. He goes, the reason people are addicted is because they, every, he said, first of all, everyone's addicted to multiple things. They think they can rule it, but they can't. And they just need to get to that place where they realize it's bigger than them. But people live their whole lives not living the lives they were meant to live. And here's why. They either... I, I'm not an, an addict or two. I got this. I've got this. So he said it's all, most of the work is right there. It's coming to the realization what this passage says is that we're bent and it's bigger than us. We're twisted and we're addicted to this sin. 
And I said, well, this is how it came up. I said, here's, if, if you were a son of Adam, if you were a daughter of Eve, you realize, right, that's the point. Sin is crouching at your door all the time to continually drive you towards this insanity. Can you acknowledge that? So I asked him, um, I said, look, I, I have an acquaintance, and, and this, this really disturbs me because he was, I don't know, something like 10, 11 years sober. And then, and then he overdosed on heroin, just like that. And I just don't understand how you can go so long and then, and then have that happen. Can you help me understand that part of the addictive life? And he said, oh, sure, yeah, it takes 10 minutes. I said, what? He goes, yeah, it takes 10 minutes. I, well, you're going to, okay. He goes, look, here's the thing. This is how an addict lives. This is how a person, right, Tim Shells, rules over an addiction. He says, it's, it's 10 minutes a day. You start your day and you center yourself. These are his words, right? You center yourself. He says, you, you, re- you admit that I have an addiction and it's bigger and stronger than me. And God is stronger than a, that addiction. And I'm going to live the rest of the day with, with those truths in mind. And then at the end of the day, they have to journal at his place. You have to journal in the morning, first thing in the morning. You have to journal the last thing you do. And you have to admit to these two things, that you have an addiction and it is it's desire for you and it's going to destroy you. But you may, Tim Shell, rule over it if God is bigger than that. You acknowledge that. And I said, well, okay. He says, what's, I said, what's the 10 minutes about it? He goes, well, look, guys come back to our place. They have to reapply and all this. And they'll say, oh, yeah, I relapsed, like, let's just say June 1st. I relapsed on June 1st. I did the cocaine or whatever they do. And he says, well, give me your journal. And he takes her journal and he goes, oh, oh, okay, according to your journal, you relapsed in February, not in June. Because in February, that was your last journal entry. Somewhere around February 2nd, you quit acknowledging. You woke up on February 3rd, and you didn't say you were an addict. You didn't say you needed a higher power to Tim Shell. You thought you were cured. And so on February 2nd, you relapsed. You just didn't do your drug until June 1st. You see? He just looks at this and says, in his... His values in this book says this. He just says, he says, sin is crouching at your door. Do you know this about you? Its desire is for you, but you may rule it. The reason Jesus Christ came to die and was raised again was to pay for our sins so that the Spirit of God could live in our souls so that every day we could wake up and say, sin is stronger than me, but not stronger than the spirit that lives within me. He had to clean our souls and make it righteous so that the spirit could live in us so that we, could not, we would not have to live the life that Cain lived, but we have to do this. Jesus said, I came that you might have a life and have it abundantly. He didn't mean he ever let next life. I came that you might have life, have abundantly right now today. But if, if this, if you acknowledge this, that sin, a sin, these addictions are always crouching at your door and its desire is for you. And if you may, if you acknowledge, 
and surrender, you may rule it. The abundant life that Jesus promised, it is contingent. It is contingent on absolute surrender to the glory of God and him working in your life. Genesis chapter 4 through 11 has this message. We're very broken. We're deeply bent. But we don't have to live that way anymore. We can choose to live by the power of the Spirit of God if we surrender. Tim Shell, you may. That's my prayer for us. Let's pray that, okay? Dear Lord Jesus, oh, you came to just pay for our sins, but to leave us your spirit. I must leave so that the helper can come and do things that I could never do. The spirit could, if we surrender, allow us to live the abundant life that you promised. So, Lord, I'd ask that you would help us acknowledge this, that we are addicted to And we will be addicted to that until the day we see you face to face. And and the desire of that addiction is to destroy us and mock us. And so now, Lord, I pray that we no longer bathe in that. We no longer surrender to that. But we choose to allow your spirit to rule that by our surrender to your desire we turn towards you or we give you our lives. We surrender as a church to you that we might enjoy a little taste of paradise in this life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.